Welcome to Faith at Work. I'm Carl Grant, and today's podcast will feature the 2014 High Tech Prayer Breakfast in the D.C. metro area where Doris McMillan was the speaker. A lot of you all out there. Good morning. It is good to see you all this morning, and it is good to be seen by you. I am so pleased and honored to be here um, at the High Tech Prayer Breakfast. You all had to get up early this morning, didn't you? All right. Well, I began to think about what I was going to share with you, and I had to think about this high tech business. And I said, I'm really a low tech girl in a high tech world. But I think I've got it figured out now. I have to tell you this little story. In 1998, I was working with, um, uh, on a project for the American Gas Association. And I didn't have a computer. <clears throat> and so uh, we were having a conference call about the logistics and everything for the meeting. And one of the principals said, well, I will be on travel. And so I will be communicating by email. Don't ask me where these words came from out of my mouth. I said, I don't do email. And he said, well, we don't do business. And then I said, I do email. (laughs) And I went out and bought a computer. Now I think I have about six computers, a couple tablets, and a smartphone and a dumb phone. So anyway, uh, that's my high-tech story. (laughs) But uh, technology has really changed a lot uh, about how we do television. And if anyone would, to- would have told me that I'd be sitting in my office doing voiceover work uh, from my computer and a microphone and a program called Audacity, it's free, uh, I would have said, really? But life changes. I want to give you a little bit of background about me uh, so that you'll understand why I'm where I am today. I was born in Munich, Germany. My mother is German. My father was a black GI who was uh, stationed in Germany. And uh, they met at an Oktoberfest. So I always tell people it must be the beer, which is why I'm here. (laughs) I never knew a bottle of beer could have such great meaning. (laughs) But at any rate, my mother and my father met. Uh, I was conceived. And then I was put into an orphanage at 13 months. My mother said that a white woman in Germany with a black child was not going to work very well. Uh, She told me when uh, I slipped out, she said I came out kind of fast. Just call me speedy. Uh, She said that um, her mother, my Oma, had to come and take her from the hospital because when they saw that I was black, uh, their whole attitude towards her changed. She said she had me in a baby carriage, pushing me down the street. People looked in the baby carriage and spit in it. So that was the way my life started. So at 13 months, I was put into an orphanage in Munich. And my parents, the McMillans, Horace and Louise McMillan, happened to have been stationed in Germany. They could not have any children, but they had heard about these brown babies. That's what they call us. Uh, If you get a chance, I would really encourage you to look at our video, our documentary called Brown Babies, the Mischling's Kinder Story. Um, It tells the story of about five, 6,000 of us that were left in Germany 
because of these relationships, and it was uh, shortly after the war. The McMillans came to the orphanage in search of a child. They found a little boy, and then my dad, I love to hear him tell this story, he said, I was walking down the Isle of Cribs, he said, and I stopped at your crib. He said, you just kind of went. <laughs> he said, and I said, that's my baby. So I've still been. I figure it works real good. But um, the story didn't um, transpire like you would think. When people adopt children, you think they adopt them because they really want children and they're really going to love them. And that may have been the premise when my parents adopted me. But as I was growing up, uh, it turned out that my mom, and I call her my mom, um, had mental health issues. I think if she were diagnosed today, they probably would have said that she was bipolar and maybe a couple of other things. But she turned out to be a very abusive woman. And as I grew up, she used to beat me um, in ways I can't begin to tell you. I, I think sometimes I said I was the nail and she was the hammer. She used to tell me that I would grow up to amount to nothing that I would have a house full of babies and disgrace the family. That's what I heard for my growing up years. But what it did for me, and I know this is a God thing, all of the negative, hurtful, awful things that this woman said to me, I said, I am not going to be like that. Unlike Mo, I was like, I want to be rich and famous. <laughs> I want to have all the money. I want to have all of the position. I want it all. And my motive? Because I wanted my mother to love me. I figured if I had achieved all of these things, that she would care about me more, that she would really love me. And that didn't happen. However, in 1981, my mom died. And in her dying, she left a little suitcase that had all of the information about my life, my German roots. I found the suitcase and I opened it up. I was working for Eyewitness News uh, in New York at the time. Uh, I was doing the morning news. And I, sitting there, normally I would call her on a Monday morning because she was going for her chemo treatments. And this one particular Monday morning, it was October 5th, 1981. I think I remember that because Anwar Sadat was assassinated on that day. And I would normally call her, you know, encourage her, and then go back and do my new shift. This particular morning, I did not call her. I don't know why I didn't call her, but I just didn't call her. I got off the air and I turned around and there was my husband. Do you all know what a husband is? It was my ex-husband. <laughs> was standing. Well, if you all have a husband, you know what I'm talking about. But he was standing in the newsroom. And I'm like, what is he doing here at this hour? And he told me, he said, I'm so sorry to tell you, but your mom has died. And I didn't know it then, really know it, but I suspected that my life was about to change. And in fact, it did. I got that little suitcase and I opened it up and there were pictures of me when I was a baby that I'd never seen before. 
My adoption papers, which were in German and in English, were in there. And because I worked for ABC, I called um, Hal Walker, who was then our correspondent in Bonn, and I said, Hal, I need your help. I need you to help me find my mother. Now, you have to understand, all these years, anybody that I knew was German, spoke German, looked German, I thought they might be German, I was asking them, can you help me find my mother? And are you going to Germany? When, this is the sad part, because I've done investigative reporting, I could have just picked up the phone and called information in Munich and I'd have found her, but don't tell anybody that. But Hal Walker helped me to find her on my 30th birthday. Uh, he said, I found your mother. Well, I had a friend who was Iranian and Nahida spoke fluent German, so I didn't want to take the chance that we would miscommunicate from the start. So I said, Nahida, can you call my mother and ask her if she wants to see me? Nahida calls me back. She said, we spoke for an hour. She does want to see you, and she speaks English. <laughs> Go figure. So I get on a plane. I go to Germany. I meet my mother, and in doing so, she tells me who my father is. I come back to the States. Uh, I'm being interviewed by my colleagues because this was a big story in New York. And uh, my co-anchor, one of my anchors said, so do you know who your father is? I said, yes, his name is Ernest Barnett, and I have reason to believe he lives in this viewing area. Well, it turns out that my father, Ernest Barnett, had retired from Fort Dix in New Jersey, and his uncle Wade was watching television in the Bronx. And uncle Wade calls my father, and he says, guess who's looking for you? But it was actually a great reunion because he had come back to Germany looking for me in 66 because he wanted to bring me back to the States uh, to raise me. But my mother said, I'm sorry, she's gone, and she didn't give him any more information. Well, I will say this. Uh, I met him on December 25th, 1981, at the Port Authority bus station in New York. And I ended um, up having a great relationship with both of my parents my birth parents. My mother is still alive and well, living in Munich, and uh, she is 86. My father passed in 2003. My mom is gone and my dad, and when I say my mom and my dad, for those of you who may have adopted children, let me say this. They may find birth parents here, there, and everywhere, but you are their mom and their dad. You are the one who was there for them when they were sick, you are the one who took care of them, who raised them, who instilled in them many things. And so I always call them my mom and my dad. People want to call them my step-parents. No, they're my mom and my dad. And I look at that, and I, I'm thankful, because even though my growing up was very traumatic, it, I knew that um, I had to become something, someone. And my goal as I told you, was to be rich and famous. I remember telling my mom, I said, Mom, I am going to be a famous actress, to which she said, girl, get a real job, anybody can act. I shouldn't have listened to that, but I did. So, but thankfully, I ended up getting into television news and radio instead of on stage. Let me tell you this, it's still an act, however you slice the pie. So... I, I'm thankful for all of that. Uh, having uh, moved from Detroit uh, to New York, 
that was part of my goal to get there, to, to be that rich, famous person. Uh, I decided, too, I wanted to marry a rich man. I go whole hog when I go, okay? And so I married a gentleman. He's an orthopedic surgeon. He's from Haiti. And I remember him telling me, every Haitian you meet wants to be president but me. To which I said, oh, okay. And then he decided to run for president when Jean-Claude Duvalier, baby doc, was exiting stage left. That was the turning point for me. I had realized all of my dreams, all of the things that I thought I needed to be happy. I lived in Kings Point, New York, out on Long Island. I had the million-dollar home. Uh, I even had a regulation lane bowling alley in my basement. And you know that wine, Mo, that you drank? I had a 700-bottle wine cellar, which was good for starters. Um, And I had all of the trappings, all of the things that you think you need to be happy, all of those things that you think are going to be life-changing for you. Well, let me tell you, things come and go. The year that my husband decided that he was going to be president, we lost everything. Have you ever seen anybody evicted from a million-dollar home? It is an ugly sight. You have fine oriental rugs lying out there on your manicured lawn. Your crystal, your china, your art collection, your things, your children, their things, everything. We lost it all. At that same time, I was anchoring the news here in in Washington, D.C., and I was in the middle of contract negotiations, getting ready to go to the 5 o'clock news anchor. How many of you all remember Paul Barry, for those of you who are here? Well, Paul and I worked together. We were going to be anchoring the 5 o'clock news together. My agent called, and he said, Doris, he said, what's going on? I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, well, they've stopped talking. And I said, well, I don't know. I said, you know, I'm doing well. My ratings are number one at this time slot. It's all good. He said, no, they're not talking. Well, shortly after that conversation with my agent, I got a call from the general manager, and he took me out to lunch, a really lovely place. I'll never trust another general manager taking me to lunch at a really lovely place. Because at that luncheon, he said to me, I'm so sorry, I hate to tell you this. I said, and what would that be? He said, we're not renewing your contract. I couldn't believe it. Because what he didn't know, and a lot of other people didn't know, that I was counting on getting that promotion because my life in New York, and I was commuting back and forth, had just tanked. We'd lost everything. And I was $100,000 in personal debt trying to maintain the lifestyle of the rich and famous. (laughs) And I didn't know what I was going to do. I had three children. I, I had no place to go. And I remember taking stock of my situation and I said, I don't know what to do. But all of the things that I had learned growing up as a child... Um, kind of flooded back. I mean, I started out in Germany as a Catholic. Then I became a Baptist. Then I was just a happy heathen, just living my life, doing what I wanted to do. But I got to the end of myself. And I don't know where you all are today. You all look real nice, all dressed up in your suits, your power suits, you know, living in powerful Washington. But stuff is happening in your life. And I don't know you, um, and I don't know what's going on, but I know that life is happening. And if it isn't, it will be. 
But I knew for me, I had to take stock and I realized that I, Doris McMillan, was not running anything. In fact, if anything, I was running things into the ground. And I said, um, I don't know what to do. I don't have a job. I couldn't get arrested. It was that bad. And I thought, but I thought I did a great job, and I did. But I think the Lord had another message for me, and the only way he was able to get my attention was to shut everything else down around me. And that brought me back to what I had learned growing up. I grew up on drugs. I was drugged to church, drugged to Sunday school, <laughs> drugged to communion. I was just drugged all around. And then... Um, so all of that drugging I was involved in came back and I realized that I had learned a lot about Jesus. I had learned that uh, he had died for me, that he was buried and he rose again. I thought, that's a miracle. And, but he died for all of my foolishness, the nastiness in my life, the ungodly, unconscionable things that I had done. And I had done many. You wouldn't, to look at me, you wouldn't know, but let's put it this way. I don't know about you, but I would not want a big screen up there like that with my life going. I would not want a rerun of my life and the things that I've done that I would not want anyone to know. And what happened, um, I was, I did finally get a freelance job at Black Entertainment Television. There was a pastor there who said, uh, I started interviewing him, but this is even before we got on the air. And I said to him, I said, look, you're a pastor, a minister, you know God. I need to know more about God. You got to tell me about God. He's like, whoa. <laughs> I think I blew his bangs back. <laughs> At any rate, he told me, he said, there is a church in DC. It was called Shiloh Baptist Church. He said, there's a group of professionals who meet there every Tuesday. You may want to go there. So I was hungry. All I knew was I was at the end of myself. I didn't know what else to do. So off to that breakfast, I went. And I was defined by what I did in life. I was a television personality. And that's how I saw myself. And when I got to that breakfast, I had to stand up and introduce myself. And here's how it went. I'm Doris McMillan. Uh, and I need to know more about God. There was a young woman sitting in the back of the room. Her name was Yvonne Esau. She was with an organization called Campus Crusade for Christ, also now known as Crew. And she, very soft-spoken young woman, she raised her hand and she said, I will help you. That was the life-changing event that happened to me, and it happened in 1986. For two years, Yvonne came to my house every week and we met and she took me through the Bible. She took me through a, a series called Practical Christian Living. And she taught me what I believed and why I believed it. And she gave me such a strong foundation. It was life changing. I have to tell you, my life has not been the same. Now I've been through some other things since that time. I went through bone cancer in 2003. Uh, I went through another surgery that almost took my life. I've been through another marriage. 
I've been through the ups and I've been through the downs. And like Mo said, I got peace. Now, I don't know where you are today, but I have a gift for you. And because it's my birthday today, don't sing. (laughs) I just thought, now, wouldn't it just be fitting if I could give the audience this morning a gift? So I have a gift for you today. I've been thinking about you and praying for you. And I said, you know, I don't know where you are today. Some of you may be going through a divorce. Uh, You're contemplating a divorce. You're thinking about leaving your children, leaving all the things that that had been near and dear to you. Uh, You may be dealing with some serious financial issues. Been there, know about that. Um, You may have just gotten some bad news about your health. Been there, done that. Your relationship with your children is terrible at best. Perhaps uh, you're steeped in unforgiveness and anger and hatred towards someone. Or maybe you're just arrogant and no one can tell you anything. You know it all. You cannot hear from anyone. The Bible would say you're a fool. I don't, hopefully we don't have any fools in here today. But the gift that I want to give you is that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And you say, well, I'm Catholic. I was Catholic. Or I'm Presbyterian. Or I'm whatever. First of all, folks, God has no grandchildren. It's you and you alone. You will have to make that decision. But I want to offer that to you because, ladies, you'll really appreciate this. Jesus is the only man who ever said, I will never leave you nor forsake you and mean it. I took him up on that. (laughs) Fellas, he won't leave you either. But I want to give you that gift that someone would love you so dearly that he would lay down his life for you, that he would hang on a cross, that he would shed his blood for you. If it was just one of you, he would have done it just for you. I want to offer you that gift today because I know some of you may be searching this morning. You were looking for the peace that Mo talked about. I've got it too. You can have it. We are going to die one day. When I had the bone cancer, I thought about my mortality, but I knew that I had this personal relationship. I'm not talking religion, folks. I'm not talking about God. I'm talking about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. When you're in a relationship with somebody, you just want to be with them all the time. Y'all remember like when you were first dating? You stayed on the phone hours and hours. You couldn't get enough of him or her. That's the way it is with Jesus. You can't get enough. He's there for you. He meets every need. He's He just loves you. And I'm going to tell you something. Growing up in a house where I felt like I was not loved, not really, and that my life was based on performance. If I was good enough, then I could get the love. And for me, in my house, I never was good enough. But when I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, I became good enough. Even with my shortfallings, my failings, uh, where I screw up and I do that. Yeah, I do that. Um, 
he still loves me. He still thinks I'm his precious daughter. And I got to tell you, that just does something for me every day. Do I still have problems? Oh, absolutely. I'm sitting, standing here right now. I'm in pain. My neck hurts. My back hurts. My feet hurt. My arm, everything hurts. But I've got a joy. It's an unspeakable joy that no matter what I'm going through, will I make payroll this month? I sure hope so. Uh, but so far, for the past 28 years, God has pulled it out. You know, I look at him and I just love him because he loved me first when I was in all of my mess. For those of you who do know the Lord Jesus Christ, you may be at a particular point in your life today. You've got stuff going on and you're saying, I just don't know what I'm going to do. I want you to dig down deep and pull up that faith that you have and remind yourself of what God has said in the Bible and be encouraged because it's going to pass. There's, a, there's always a passage in the Bible that says, and it came to pass. And I always say, it did not come to stay. And that encourages me greatly. I want you to be encouraged. Will you receive the gift? I'm going to show you how to do that because I, I said, well, well, how do I do this? How do I, how do I ask Jesus to be a part of my life? If you all would just take a moment and bow your heads, I'm going to pray a little prayer. And it's not so much the words. The words aren't, aren't important. It's the attitude of your heart. And wherever you are today, I want to give you the best gift. It's an eternal gift that when you take your last breath, and you will, it's the one appointment we will not be late for, you will know without a doubt that you will spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Bible, it says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I know that you do not want to go to the hot place. Hell is very real. It is no joke. I would love to see this entire room again at the end, at the very end, when we all take our last breath. So bow your heads and let's pray this prayer. You can repeat it after me if you like. Lord Jesus, I want to know you personally. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I open the door of my life and receive you as my Savior and Lord. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me of all of my sins and for giving me eternal life. Take control of the throne of my life and make me the kind of person you want me to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If this prayer expresses the desire of your heart, then you can know for sure right now that Jesus Christ is in your heart. He will never leave you nor forsake you. There is nothing that you can do that's so terrible that he would say, ah, done with you. He will forgive you if you ask him. He will also never lie to you. He said, he who has the son, Jesus, has the life, eternal life, the abundant life on this side of, of, of the earth. He who does not have the son does not have eternal life. I tell you this so that you may know, not wonder, not suppose, not hope, that you have eternal life. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be here 60, 70 maybe even 100 years. My girlfriend, a friend of mine, his mom just turned 100 at the end of August. 
Two days later, my girlfriend, who takes care of her 100-year-old mom, was diagnosed with fourth-stage lung cancer. Life is going to end on this side as we know it. It is so important that you be prepared to spend eternity with the Lord. That is my gift to you. It was a gift that was given to me. Yvonne Esau gave me that gift, and then she helped me to grow in that. My life will never, ever be the same, and I pray that yours will not be the same after today. You came in this room one way. My prayer is that when you leave, you will leave feeling the peace that Mo talked about, that I have, and that a number of people in this room have, that you will know that even in the midst of your trials and your tribulations, that there is a way out and there is a way through. God, like, you know, Uncle Sam says, I want you. The Lord Jesus Christ wants you. He has plans for you, plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Receive the gift today, my friends, and I'm telling you, life will never be the same. In Jesus' name. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Um, I want you to have a great rest of the day, and you can party for me too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of Faith at Work. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm Carl Grant. Please follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Faith at Work Radio. And for more information on the High Tech Prayer Breakfast, please visit www.hightechprayerbreakfast.org. You've been listening to Faith at Work with Carl Grant. 